The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Investors bidding farewell to the summer and gearing up for the fall trading season as the ongoing rally in stocks faces a potential spooky path forward. And data out of China and Europe weighing this morning on futures. We'll have more on that in just a minute. Goldman Sachs, though, giving a more optimistic outlook on the changes of the U.S. entering a recession. The factors that it's citing for the improved picture on that recessionary outlook improving. Plus, China's embattled country garden appearing to avoid default after reportedly making payments on its debt. We are live in Beijing with the latest there. In Washington, D.C., lawmakers are set to return to work with a very lengthy to-do list. The key items to watch and the, what they have to tackle, including the potential investor impacts. And then President Biden weighing in on a potential strike by U.S. auto workers. The positive prognosis he's giving with just days to go to get a deal done. It is Tuesday, September 5th, the day after Labor Day. Everyone's back to work in 2023, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning, and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu, in for Frank Holland today. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures following the long holiday weekend. And right now, we are off offered a little bit. You can see the Dow Jones implied lower by just about 50 points, the S&P lower by just about 11, and the Nasdaq down by 71. Checking in on the bond market right now, Yields pretty much in focus here, but they're relatively steady, just around that 4.2 percent for the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note, currently about 4.216 percent. The two-year benchmark note yield 4.901 percent. And in energy markets, oil prices are still remaining stubbornly high, although off a little bit this morning. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices, $85.37. That's off about 18 cents or about one-fifth of one percent. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge down about two thirds of one percent, 57 cents to the downside, eighty eight dollars and forty three cents. And that gas prices off about five percent right now, two dollars and sixty two cents there. Let's see now how the overseas markets are shaping up on the back of some concerning economic data out of Europe and China. Arabile Goumede is in our London newsroom with the early action in Europe. Arabile. Yeah, good morning, Dom. So what we're seeing really is a down day across all of Europe then. And it does follow on from that economic data that you've pointed to, right? We're seeing Europe's uh, Eurozone's business activity dropping by what is the steepest level in nearly three years then for the month of August. Effectively, if you take away the pandemic, it's actually the steepest contraction uh, since at least 2013. That PMI number coming in then at 46.7. That's the composite figure versus the 47 uh, that we had initially seen uh, and had a preliminary reading off. So it's a down day across the board at the CAC 40, the French market being the worst loser across the day. Construction as well as retail sales being the biggest losers when one takes a look at sectors in particular. But it is a good day for Novo Nordisk, the Danish drug maker, as they power through to becoming the biggest uh, company in Europe, then powering past LVMH. 
having, of course, launched that We Govy treatment that they have then out in the UK as well. So that pushing that stock just a little bit higher in today's trade, the biggest uh, stock then uh, in Europe. Over on to Asia then, we also saw some economic data out on this front then, which was very interesting to note then. The Kaishen PMI for August coming in at 51.8, so the Chinese market then, the services sector in particular, seeing its slowest expansion since December 2002. So we're down across most of these, with only the Nikkei managing uh, a gain of around a third of a percent. Some weak economic data across the board, even the Reserve Bank out of Australia. Australia then holding their rates for a third month in a row. All right. Our Billy Gumide with the latest market action in Europe and Asia. Thank you very much. Let's talk more about this with Bill Stone. He's the chief investment officer at the Glenview Trust Company. Uh, Bill, coming back out of the holiday, uh, some folks understand that this is a seasonably strange time for the markets. There is some weakness coming back from the Labor Day weekend at times. Uh, but in your mind, is the rally going to stay intact for the final four months of the year? So um, I'm going to say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because there are a lot of good things going on. You know, I think when you look at what we've seen from payrolls and other places, you know, we're getting kind of the best you could expect in terms of, you know, some softening in labor markets, but not too soft. Um, you know, people coming back into the labor pool, uh, all those kind of things are good. The hard part is a lot of that good news is priced in. So you're, you're up close to 19% total return for the year. So I do think you have to be a little more cautious uh, on the margin here, even though, again, I, I give you there, there's been a lot of good news. I think you have to push worries about recession out until at least next year now. If the recessionary picture, though, is something that's in question, we have some data out suggesting a potentially rough month for stocks ahead. We've got S3 partners revealing bets against the U.S. stock market reaching $989 billion last week. That's up from $886 billion at the length of last year. Meanwhile, you've got data from Refinitiv showing money put into the U.S. funds has been dipping over the past five or so weeks. That's the longest losing streak since the regional banking crisis back in March. And then you've got bearish sentiment on stocks hovering at 34.5% for the second straight week. That's above the 11-week average, with bullish sentiment now below its historical average. So you have all of this sentiment economic data coming together. You say you're cautiously optimistic, but aren't there signs now that we could see a lot more volatility ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes with the territory, right? When uh, when you, when a lot of things have broken the right way, um, and when stocks are up a lot, uh, you're generally, I think, more apt to see some disappointments occasionally. So that's why, again, I tilted towards being a little more defensive uh, with new cash, even within stocks, um, because again, the other part going on underneath the surface in stocks is the extremely, or not, I shouldn't say extremely, the more cyclical components, the economically sensitive components have done really well, and, and rightly so, because earnings have probably bottomed. Uh, you know, you have to push your, if you're, we're all worried about recession, you have to push that out, I think, till next year. So I think it, it's, it's all that's right. It's just maybe at a bit of an extreme that you'd want to fade a little bit and look at these, you know, more defensive sectors that have done, you know, frankly, are down for the for the sec, for the uh, year so far. Bill, the, the, the big concern for a lot of folks out there right now is is the economic picture, the inflationary outlook, what's going to happen with the jobs market. You mentioned it's still relatively strong. The jobs market 
Is that going to be enough to outweigh the uncertainty about inflation that still lingers, especially heading in to that key consumer holiday shopping season? Well, like I said, right now we're threading the needle, you know, kind of since we're in football season, you know, I almost say, you know, the last jobs report was, you know, close to throwing that Hail Mary in the sense that you got some softening, but then you also got more people coming back into the labor market, which that would be the best outcome for everyone, which would be more people come into the labor market. It softens up wages, but people have jobs. Um, it doesn't lead to some sort of, of turn down, you know, downturn in the economy. Again, that's a probably lower probability than what we typically see, which is eventually a slowdown. But again, right now, a lot of jobs, still jobs net being created. When jobs are created in the U.S., U.S. consumer tends to show up and spend. So, I, again, I think there's less reason to worry about that, you know, whether you want earnings downturn or so forth here, certainly in the short run or for the rest of the year. All right. Bill Stone with the latest outlook there. Thank you very much. Welcome back from later today weekend. All right. Let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories now. Silvana now is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Dom. Good morning and welcome back to us all, right? Yes. All right, Dom. Here's hopefully some good news. Goldman Sachs lowering its outlook for the U.S. potentially sliding into a recession. The bank says it now sees a 15 percent chance of that happening, down from its previous 20 percent forecast. Goldman says cooling inflation and continued strength in the labor market suggest the Federal Reserve may not need to raise interest rates any further and that any drag from policy tightening could be completely gone by early next year. President Biden throwing his two cents into a potential strike by workers at the U.S.'s three largest automakers. The president said he's not worried about a potential strike, saying he does not think it will happen. The United Auto Workers Union says members are prepared to strike if an agreement with Ford, GM and Chrysler parent Stellantis is not reached before the current contract expires next Thursday. And Tesla's deliveries of its Chinese-made vehicles rising by more than 9% in August from a year ago. New data revealing the EV maker delivered more than 84,000 vehicles from its Shanghai plant. The jump coming after Tesla cut prices and rolled out the long-anticipated revamped Model 3, Dom. All right, Sylvana Hanau, thank you very much for those headlines. We'll see you later on. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. Plus, we've got China's largest property developer holding off a potential default for just a little bit longer. We'll go live to Beijing for the latest there on what's next. Plus, China taking new steps to boost its semiconductor industry as it faces growing pressure from the West. And speaking of chips, Arm Holdings looking to drum up interest for its long-anticipated IPO. Whether that debut will live all up to the hype. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. 
a second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back now to the latest developments around China's country garden and its debt problems. Reports out this morning that it's made payments on some of that debt, providing a bit of relief for the embattled developer. You can see some of the market reaction in China there. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now with the latest there on the developments with Country Garden. Eunice. Thanks, Tom. Well, Country Garden appears as though it's going to avoid default. Uh, Creditors have been saying that after the company was able to secure a three-year extension for a repayment plan on a domestic bond, uh, the company was able to eke out its payments of $22.5 million on coupons for two dollar-denominated bonds. And in addition to that, uh, creditors have been saying that the boss wired Um, a coupon payment for a ringgit, a Malaysian ringgit bond. So the company itself has not confirmed uh, many of these developments, but and, and it hasn't really had a whole lot of impact on its own stock, but it has brought a bit of a relief rally in the past couple of days um, to the, the broader sector, uh, which has already been uh, seeing some investors uh, taking interest um, in the sector because of the fact that the government had unveiled uh, several new measures to help stabilize the property sector. And we have seen a boost in some sales uh, for homes, both in Beijing and in Shanghai. So, Eunice, what exactly is next then for Country Garden? This is one of the biggest financial and economic influences in the Chinese markets. What does it say about what's next for them? Well, the company says that it still owes about $15 billion dollars on bonds that are coming due within the next 12 months. So a lot of money. Uh, We've been hearing that uh, the uh, company is looking to try to work out similar uh, repayment plans as the one that they secured last Friday um, for some of their domestic bonds, where there would be an extension of three years um, for some of these bonds. Uh, But a bigger picture, though, the company has said that it's hoping to um, increase its liquidity Uh, make sure that it has good cash flow. But, of course, there's a huge question mark as to whether it's going to be able to do that. A lot of analysts have been telling me that uh, unless the company is able to really sell homes um, and and, uh, convince people to buy, uh, it's going to be a very, very tough slog for the company. And, Eunice, sticking with this Chinese story, it it, it is reportedly... China's government taking new steps to support its computer chip industry. Uh, According to Reuters, Beijing will launch a new state-backed investment fund with a goal of raising around $40 billion. The report says that one main area of focus for that fund will be equipment for chip manufacturing. Now, the apparent move marks the latest by China in its bid to catch up with the U.S. and other countries over semiconductors. So if we take a look at some of the picture overall with particular moves on arm holdings, it could be a huge indicator for what the Chinese government has in store for its next leg of economic development. Now, 
Arm Holdings is expected to kick off its roadshow with investors later on today ahead of the chipmaker's much-anticipated IPO. So thank you, Eunice, for that. For that now, we turn to Reuters, which says that Arm, which is now owned by SoftBank, is lowering expectations, planning to set the price range for its IPO between 47 and 51 bucks a share. That would put its valuation roughly in the range of 50 to 55 billion dollars. That's down from as much as $70 billion previously. Now, Arm could price and list its shares on the Nasdaq as soon as next week. It's just one of several high-profile IPOs on the calendar for this fall. Joining me now is Avery Spear, the senior analyst over at Renaissance Capital, for more on this IPO trend. Avery, just how important for the overall market is Arm Holdings, and will it live up to the hype? It's a great question. Um, you know, ARM is expected to be a very big deal. Um, so it will be a good indicator for, um, you know, appetite in the IPO market. Um, and, you know, it, if it does well, it could easily be the deal that finally breaks the IPO log jam. Um, as for investor appetite, um, you know, it will be a good test in that in a slow period, any deal that gets done is significant. Um, but for the rest of the pipeline, we're looking at deals um, more like software firm Clavio, um, because that's more like a typical IPO candidate. So that will likely tell us more about appetite for the rest of the pipeline. Arm Holdings is one that everyone is watching, not just because of the IPO barometer aspect of it, but because of what's happening with regard to computer chips, artificial intelligence and everything else. The Arm Holdings IPO, it, does it say anything that we're starting to see some reports, at least, that the demand picture is maybe cooling off ever so slightly for it? That's a good question as well. Um, you know, I think that Arm is a unique company. Um, it's got a little bit of hair on the deal, as you mentioned, with its ties to China. Um, so, you know, Demand for this company may not be indicative of demand for all future chip companies looking to go public in the IPO market. Now, if we take a look at the rest of the IPO calendar for the year, Renaissance Capital has a close eye on all of these offerings. Is there anything in particular that says to you that this IPO market could see a better year in 2024 than we've seen in 2023? And if so, what types of companies are there going to be outside of ARM that will be leading the way higher for that move? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are seeing some very good signs heading into the fall. Um, the IPO market isn't a very good place. Um, the Renaissance IPO index, which you know is perhaps one of the better indicators for uh, performance in the market, is up you know um, about thirty percent year to date. Um, we're also seeing you know solid returns from the year's large issuers. Uh, the volatility index is settling. Um, so, yeah, all the pieces are falling into place for a gradual pickup through year end, leading into maybe a more normal market in 2024. Okay. Uh, and as for uh, what activity will look like, um, we've got our eyes on, um, you know, more biotechs, uh, some consumer brands, uh, and maybe some energy companies. All right. Biotech, consumer, and energy. Avery Spear with the Outlook for IPOs. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Coming ahead up on Worldwide Exchange, New York City rolling out new rules cracking down on companies like Airbnb. Why landing a short-term rental for your next visit to the Big Apple may be a little bit more difficult. We have that story when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. That's a live shot of New York City right now. The days are getting shorter, so it's still dark out there. But New York City is important because the process of getting a short-term rental in the Big Apple is about to get a lot harder starting today. New York City is officially beginning an enforcement of new rules regulating the likes of Airbnb, with some arguing the laws essentially equal an all-out ban on some of these types of short-term rentals. Robert Frank joins us now with more on that story. Robert, uh, this is something that many condo associations, co-ops, and everybody else do already. They restrict the kinds of leases and rentals you can have. Why is this one such a big deal for New York? Well, Dom, mainly because it's all about enforcement. Because starting today, short-term rental hosts in New York on Airbnb, Booking.com, all the other platforms... They're going to have to register with the city and they have to comply starting today with a new law that states, number one, you can't rent out your entire apartment for less than 30 days, even if you live in the building. And hosts can only offer short-term rentals if they remain with their guests in the apartment. Host face fines of up to $5,000 per violation. There are about 40,000 Airbnbs in New York, not to mention some of the other platforms, but Rampant abuse, where hosts rented or bought dozens of apartments to Airbnb as shadow hotel rooms, has led to, as you mentioned, neighbor complaints. City council members also say they have, th- this poll process has raised rents in New York since it's taken rentals off the market. Airbnb says New York City's short-term rental rules are a, quote, blow to its tourism economy and that thousands of New Yorkers and small businesses in the outer boroughs who rely on home sharing and tourism dollars to help make ends meet. Hosts say registration is almost impossible. Many have waited months for approval, and the building codes make it far too costly to comply. Now, I think that the, um, the impact of the legislation is lumping one and two family homeowners with larger buildings, landlords, and developers where there are bad actors. And that certainly needs to be addressed. Now, Dom, city councils in Dallas, Philly, New Orleans have passed similar rules so far. They haven't done much to curb the abuse, but good news for Airbnb and those shareholders. They also haven't done much to dent that market and the company's growth in those markets. Uh, So as a consumer, Robert, uh, uh, of tourism, I I like having the options, right, uh, of being able to stay at an Airbnb or at a hotel. But you got to imagine the hotel industry has uh, uh, at least a dog in this fight, a pony in this race. What exactly is the hotel industry looking at with regard to how these rules affect their particular economics? You're absolutely right. It's going to be a boost for hotels. You know, hotels in New York have already had a pretty good recovery post-pandemic with occupancy rates well above 70, 80 percent, sort of 
basically back to 2019 levels. There's still a number of hotels that are still closed. They're planning to reopen in the next year or two. So that will be a boost for them. The big question for New York, though, is how it impacts the rental market. As you remember, rents in Manhattan are now at an all-time high, about $5,600 per month with the average. Some are hoping that as these Airbnbs come off the rental platforms and onto the long-term rental market, that will hopefully add some more inventory and lower prices. That's going to be the big question, in addition to the benefits for the hotels, which could be more of a short-term impact. Affordability for rent in New York City is certainly a big issue there. Thank you very much, Robert Frank. We'll see you later on. We'll still ahead on the show, Apple and Microsoft reportedly looking to keep two key technologies from facing the wrath of new regulations out of Europe, the case being made by the tech giants. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. It's Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be back after this. It's 5.30 a.m. in New York, and there's still a lot here on Worldwide Exchange coming up. So here's what's on deck. Stocks are set to kick off the holiday shortened trading week in the red as investors prepare for a potentially rocky fall season. Futures right now are in the red. In Washington, D.C., Congress returns from summer break with a lengthy to-do list. We lay out the key legislation on the docket and the potential impact on your money. And Disney's standoff with charter communications is taking a new turn as it looks to give customers left in the dark a new option to get programming back. It is Tuesday, September 5th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. equity futures, which are offered right now. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is implied lower by just around 20 points. So modest losses at the opening bell. The S&P is implied lower by roughly seven to eight points and the Nasdaq down by about 54. In the bond market, yields are somewhat on the rise here. You can see the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield is just around 4.22%. The benchmark 2-year note yield, 4.91%. Let's also hit oil prices as well. Prices at the pump staying stubbornly high, but oil prices are on the move lower this morning, ever so slightly, down by about one-tenth of 1% for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, or WTI crude prices. They currently stand at $85.42, down 13 cents. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, down about 50 cents to $88.52. That's off one half of 1%. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. The Financial Times is reporting that Apple and Microsoft are reportedly looking to keep Bing and iMessage off a list of designated gatekeepers under Europe's Digital Markets Act, which imposes new responsibilities on tech companies. Microsoft and Apple argue that their services are not powerful enough to be subject to the regulations meant to promote competition within the industry. The rules ask that Bing give users a choice of other search engines, including Google's, and that Apple allows the use of outside messaging platforms. Elon Musk threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League over its role in an advertising revenue slump for his ex-platform. In a post last night, Musk says ad revenue is down 60% due to pressure put onto advertisers by the Anti-Defamation League after the organization called out more than 5,000 examples of anti-Semitism on X earlier this year. 
And Disney is urging customers of Charter Spectrum Cable Service to switch to Hulu Live TV after pulling its channels from Spectrum in the middle of live sports coverage. The company saying in a blog post that Hulu, which Disney owns a majority stake in, comes without a contract, cable box and subscription wait time and offers all the same Disney-owned channels, including ABC and ESPN. A very interesting tack by a cable <laughs> sure operator. Sure is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Silvana Hanau, thank you very much. All right, turning now to Washington, D.C., and Congress set to get back to work after their summer break. There's plenty for lawmakers to tackle on their to-do list. Emily Wilkins joins us now with what's on the agenda. And Emily, it's a lot, but it's the Senate first and then the House later on this month. You're absolutely right, Dom. We're going to see the Senate get back today. House isn't going to get back to next week. But even with that extra week for the Senate, they still have so much to do. Remember, Congress was out all of last month, and now they've got this unusually busy schedule. Number one priority, of course, is ensuring the government is funded past the September 30th deadline. Now, both House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer say they want to pass a resolution continuing the current funding levels until later this year. In addition to keeping the lights on, several major programs are set to expire at the end of September unless lawmakers act. This includes overseeing airplane safety and infrastructure supporting farmers and the food they produce. It includes food stamps. It includes assistance for child care providers and ensuring that the U.S. primary flood insurance program is able to still renew and sell new policies. Huge with a lot of the hurricanes we've seen. In addition, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told colleagues last week that he hopes to do other bills on artificial intelligence, banking for cannabis companies, and climb back compensation of senior executives for failed banks. Bill Hoagland, a senior vice president at the Bipartisan Policy Center, said it's unlikely Congress will be able to get much done outside of programs with a hard deadline. Given the divisions that exist up there, I think the, the majority leaders are uh, a letter is probably uh, over ambitious about what can be accomplished. Uh, under the best of circumstances, it would be difficult, but under the circumstances of the partisanship that now existed, it's even worse. In addition to bills that have to be passed because the programs are expiring, Congress must also decide whether to fulfill the White House's request for a $44 billion package of funding for Ukraine, the southern border, and natural disasters. Dom? Emily, out of that list that you just laid out, what is it that actually gets done? It's not going to be all of it, we don't think. So what could happen in the coming weeks? Well, Dom, Congress loves a deadline, and so I would point to the programs that actually do need to be renewed this year. Things like, they call it the Farm Bill, basically an agricultural package that includes SNAP funding and food stamps. Uh, that's one of the must-pass, and you do see some bipartisan support on that. Another one, they call it the FAA reauthorization. Obviously, that has a lot to do with airplane safety, airplane infrastructure. That's another one where you see a lot of bipartisan support, but there's some debate over training hours for pilots, whether those can be changed at all, given the current shortage. So I think those are really the things where there's pressure on lawmaker to do it. Other things like continuing some pandemic funding for child care and even the White House's request for more funding, those don't have a hard deadline to them. And therefore, there's just less pressure on lawmakers to get that done. 
All right. Emily, Emily Wilkins live in Washington with the latest there on the congressional agenda. Thank you very much. Let's talk more about this packed agenda in Congress this fall and the potential for a government shutdown. James Petakoukas is an economic policy analyst with the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a CNBC contributor. He's also the author of the upcoming book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Jimmy, great to, great to have you with us. Uh, hey, Emily laid out the agenda for us, but I'm more interested in the conflict and where exactly the friction points will be between Democrats and Republicans on getting some of these deals done. What exactly is the outcome that we could expect in the coming weeks? Well, I think the the key conflict is really between the the House Freedom Caucus, you know, sort of you know very right wing House members, and kind of everybody else. So we'll we'll uh, we'll go to the spoiler. The spoiler is I think there's going to be a shutdown, uh, and the one reason I think there's going to be a shutdown is that these. Uh, is that shutdowns in, those, in and of themselves are really not market events. So the risk of doing so is not that high. There is a political risk, but since there's not an economic risk, a market risk, there's there's just less incentive not to do it. So I think we're going to get a shutdown, whether it's two days or two weeks. I don't know, but I think that is going to happen. If that does happen, you just implied that it's more theater than it is anything else because there's not going to be a massive economic or market impact to it. Why do it? What's the calculus? And then what exactly is the cost benefit in the upcoming election cycle for whoever does want to push the shutdown narrative more? Generally, the people who are pushing it, who are perceived as pushing it, there is a negative political impact broadly. But if you're a congressman, you're looking at your own district you're a Republican. You want to you want to show them that you're fighting against Joe Biden. You're fighting against Bidenomics. You're fighting against his his climate agenda. So that's the incentive. The incentive is to show you're a fighter, but you're not going to change anything. They're not going to change the budget. They're not going to get the budget rolled back to 2022. And meanwhile, if you're actually concerned about deficits and debt, you should be talking about entitlement reform, creating a, a more efficient tax system that can bring in more revenue and economic growth. They're not talking about that. So that's why I think you're right to say it is theater. It is performative. And maybe for those individual congressmen, there won't be much of a cost. But for Republicans overall, you look like you're uh, you're you're you're, shut, you're inefficient. You can't govern. You're shutting down the government. You just look like, you, you know, you can't shoot straight. Jimmy, uh, the, the House Freedom Caucus is going to be front and center given the negotiations coming up. Can you take us through what exactly uh, in your mind they want to see and how far are they willing to push this if this is, in fact, theater? Yeah, I mean, listen, again, I'm not sure. You know, I think the longest shutdown was a month. It seems unlikely it'll go that far. One reason is. The, the budget agreement that we got back in May, which uh, President Biden signed in early June, that was a Listen, that's a bipartisan agreement. So they've already agreed on a bipartisan basis how to fund the government. So I don't think this is going to be a, a, a very long. And there's no chance. There's no chance they're going to, like, throw out that agreement, roll spending back to what it was in 2022. That is just fantastical. Uh, so while I think, again, it might help particular members of that caucus. Showing that you know they're sticking, they're they're sticking up for themselves, they're standing up for President Biden. In the end, uh, the agreement that was signed earlier in the summer that that is what's going to stick, and then we'll move on from there. 
All right. Jimmy Pethokoukis with the latest state of play in our nation's capital. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Coming up on the show, LVMH officially dethroned as Europe's most valuable company. The pharmaceutical giant now holding on to that title revealed next. That's our mystery chart. But first, as we head out to break, some of your top trending stories. Are you in need of a good night's sleep? You may be in luck. Hotels and wellness resorts in London, the Maldives, and Spain among those launching quote-unquote sleep tourism programs using artificial intelligence beds, on-call hypnotherapists, and sleep tracking devices. Also, speaking of travel, how about Indonesia? OpenAI CEO Sam Altman becoming the first person to get a golden visa to the country as it looks to increase foreign investor interest. The 10-year visa allows Altman priority screening at airports and longer stay periods. And forget the plain old yachts, super yachts are now in style. Business Insider says the wealthy are buying super yachts in record numbers as they look to impress guests, relax without national borders, and access their global businesses at a moment's notice. It's nice to be rich. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back. We've got a market flash for you now on shares of Viatris. This is the company announcing that the FDA has issued tentative approval for a single tablet regimen for HIV treatment for children. And right now, shares are reacting positively up about six and a half percent in the extended trade. Now time for your morning call sheet. We've got A.B. Bernstein upgrading its rating on price and price target on Lowe's, moving it to an outperform and per share. It says it sees a number of positive and mutually reinforcing trends that it expects to continue for the home improvement retailer throughout the course of the year. So those shares just about flat for lows on the session. A similar story for Barclays and Oracle. It is raising its rating to overweight and price target to 150 bucks a share. Barclays says it sees multi-year opportunities for solid growth at Oracle. So those shares right now up one and a half percent. And then UBS is initiating coverage of Dine brands with a buy rating and a $68 price target. It says the Applebee's and IHOP parent company is heavily franchised with that business model. It provides a unique stability within the casual dining market. So right now, those shares thinly traded, but not moving very much at all. Time now for your global briefing. A, some economic reports from overseas are taking note here. First, you got China's services activity having its slowest pace of growth in eight w- months as weak demand continues to drag the world's second largest economy. Also, business activity in the eurozone fell more than initially thought and its services industry fell into contraction, according to a survey that suggests the bloc could then drop into a recession at some point. We've also got Australia's central bank keeping interest rates steady for the third straight month on optimism that inflation will return to the 2 to 3% target range by late 2025. A growing number of economists now betting that the tightening cycle is likely over, though the bank says more hikes may still be required to further curb inflation. And shares of Novo Nordisk are up nearly 1%. It may not seem like a lot as the drug maker becomes Europe's most valuable company for the first time ever. That's the reason why it's important. It dethroned French luxury giant LVMH. Now, all this as Novo Nordisk's best-selling weight loss drug, Wagovi, enters the U.K. markets on a limited and controlled basis following soaring demand here in the U.S., Norway, Denmark, and Germany as well. 
Well, ahead, the one word every investor needs to know today, plus why our next guest says she's taking a bearish approach to stocks after this big summer rally. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. We've got embattled Chinese real estate developer Country Garden reportedly making an interest payment on two U.S. dollar bonds, those payments helping to avoid an imminent debt default. China is reportedly taking new steps to support its semiconductor sector. According to Reuters, Beijing will launch a new state-backed investment fund with a goal of raising roughly $40 billion. Arm Holdings is expected to kick off its roadshow with investors today ahead of the chipmaker's much-anticipated initial public offering. Reuters says the SoftBank-owned company is lowering expectations, setting the price of shares somewhere between the $47 and $51 range. Goldman Sachs is lowering its outlook for the U.S. potentially sliding into a recession from 20% down to 15%. Goldman citing cooling inflation and continued strength in the labor market for that new forecast. President Biden saying he needs uh, he does not think a strike by workers at the U.S.'s three largest automakers will actually happen. Negotiators for the UAW, Ford, GM and Stellantis have until next Thursday to reach a new contract agreement. And Tesla's deliveries of its Chinese made vehicles rising by more than nine percent in August from a year ago. The jump coming after Tesla cut prices and rolled out the long anticipated revamped Model 3 in that market. Well, here is what to watch today. On the economic front, we've got July factory orders out at 10 a.m. Eastern time. The Senate also returns from summer break as it works to ensure the government is funded past the September 30th deadline. And by the way, don't miss a CNBC exclusive interview with Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller later on this morning on Squawk Box, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Well, let's dig into the markets as we gear for the trading day ahead. First of all, we know what's been driving the action and that bullish move we've seen in stocks over the course of this year-to-date period. It has been technology, communication services, and the consumer discretionary sector because of names like Meta and Tesla, NVIDIA, and others. Now, when it comes to the market cap side of things, check out what's happening on a year-to-date basis for the large, medium, and small cap parts of the market. We know that the large caps have been dominating. Mid caps are trying to play a little bit of catch up here, as are small caps. You can kind of see that gap closing here in just the last couple of months or so. And then if you look on a more one-month basis on some of these charts, check out what's happening here with the large cap, mid cap, and Russell 2000. Over the last month, though, that Spider S&P 500 large cap ETF has taken more of that leadership role. So we'll see if that trend breaks or continues. For more on this and the trading day ahead, I'm joined now by Amy Wu Silverman, the head of derivative strategy over at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Amy, this is always something we go to you with because you keep a close eye on what's happening with fund flows, the derivatives markets. Can we expect to see this bullishness continue given what some of the futures and options markets are telling us? Good morning, Dom. So look, when I look at the option tea leaves, sentiment a few months ago was probably at peak exuberance. And we're not seeing that now as we head into the fall. And, you know, we look at this in terms of the call demand upside and the put demand downside. And not only is the upside waning, not only is there less demand for those call options, you're starting to see the tick up and put demand rise on those mega cap tech stocks you just mentioned, like NVIDIA. 
Skew is something that you watch very closely as well. We, we talk about it often because it looks at the relative price of certain uh, bullish options versus the relative price of certain bearish ones. Is that kind of telling us a little bit more that skew about whether or not there is this, this anticipation, if you will, of further downside ahead? Yeah, that's a great question. And in 2022, so in 2022 last year, skew really underperformed. And what we mean by that was you had a market drawdown of over 20% in the S&P. And if you had owned puts last year, you managed to draw down 21%. So a total failure of skew coming into 2023. And essentially what happened is a lot of investors felt like hedges just weren't working. And you really saw that until the regional bank crisis, Dom, where people kind of remembered, oh, wait, there is a left tail. Um, And then that was masked again by the exuberance in the summer. And I do think that's coming back this year as we look to some things that catalyze low volatility, like perhaps the debt ceiling, perhaps strikes, or perhaps just the waning enthusiasm on, you know, the mega cap tech and AI side. Amy, I'd like to get to your word of the day because it has a little bit to do with the trends that we are seeing in the market. Can you take us through what your word of the day is? Yes, my word of the day is ride, as in are we getting off the ride uh, this fall? And the reason I say that is I think you know, and I think a lot of folks have become more aware that since the pandemic, you know, people really realize that option markets can exacerbate momentum either directions. You saw that during the YOLO meme crisis. You saw that during the kind of beginning of the AI crisis. And the question is, as that phase, do people get off the ride and do we see that exacerbation going in the opposite direction? If you take a look at some of those crazy parts of the market that have seen a lot of momentum, you mentioned artificial intelligence. Are there certain places in the market that you think will be better to be positioned in for the final few months of the year? So it's interesting going back to the beginning of your segment where you looked at the breadth widening essentially and then kind of the trades uh, growth versus values, small, mid versus large cap, those rotations happening. You do see a little bit more enthusiasm in the options market in something like an IWM or something that's more cyclical as we head into the end of the year. But I will tell you that differential isn't very high yet. I'd be curious if that widens as we head into the end of the year. And just before we let you go, a few seconds left, Amy your least favorite part of the market? So the concern right now is all in China and the China-related ETFs, FXI and EEM. All right. So some bearishness there as well. Amy Wu Silverman, thank you very much. Let's check out right now what's happening with the futures market. We do see some downside pressure, although it's modest at this point. Over the course of the last hour, it's gotten slightly better. The s and implied lower by just seven points at this point. The Dow Jones by about 15 to 16 Uh, That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box comes up next with this post-Labor Day holiday now done. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.